Good evening. It is currently 6 p.m. Eastern time, and in two hours, the 67th Hugo Award Ceremony will begin in Washington, D.C. My name is Gabriel Schenk, and I have with me a panel of Signum University staff members who have each read one of the entries shortlisted for the best novel in the Hugo Awards this year. In just a moment, we will hear from each reviewer, and they will tell us a little bit about the novel, what they did or did not like about it, and whether they think it will pick up the prestigious prize that will be announced later tonight. We are grateful to the publishers of the novels for providing complimentary review copies, but the reviewers are under no obligation to avoid criticisms. They will give their honest opinions about each novel. After each reviewer has spoken, we will open discussion, identifying any themes shared across the shortlist this year. If you are joining us live on Zoom, welcome. Uh, please type any questions you have into the Q&A box and panelists will respond to those questions at the end. You can also use the chat function to give your general thoughts on these novels or comments on what the reviewers have said. If you are joining us on YouTube, welcome. Uh, please leave a comment below telling us if you've read any of these novels, and if so, what you thought of them. If not, have we inspired you to read any of them? Before we begin, a brief reminder that the Hugo Awards shortlists are chosen by members of the World Science Fiction Convention, who also select a winner. So it's a very democratic literary prize, uh, not like the Booker Prize, which is selected and, and judged by a small panel of experts, um, not even like the uh, Nebula Award, which is uh, chosen and judged by a, a wide selection of people, but still um, professionals, uh, professional writers in uh, science fiction and fantasy. Uh, the Hugo Awards is the kind of the most uh, open and um, uh, connected to what the fans are thinking and reading. So it makes it a really exciting literary award to follow. Um, there are also many other Hugo Awards. It's not just about the best novel. Uh, and I urge you to visit the Hugo Awards website to see all the other categories and nominees. But for tonight, we are just focusing on the best novel. So let us begin. First up, Trevor is going to review The Relentless Moon by Mary Robinette Coel. Thank you very much. Um... So The Relentless Moon, Relentless Moon is the third book in the Lady Astronaut series by Mary Robinette Kowal. And the first two books were very successful. In fact, the first one um, got the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 2018, as well as the uh, 2018 Nebula Award for Best Novel. So the series is set in the 50s and 60s of an alternate history in which a meteor strikes the eastern northern, uh, northern America in 1952 and it causes uh, great destruction and a lot of loss of life. And the meteor strike also destabilizes the Earth's climate. Um, basically, the Earth will become uninhabitable uh, for human beings within decades. And this gives a lot of urgency to the um, space program, which was just getting started, because this is, um, represents the only possibility for the survival of any part of humanity. So in this alternate history, the space program is much more substantial than it was in our own. 
um, a project of true international cooperation with access to uh, much greater resources than, than our own even had. So the first two books in the series are told from the point of view of Dr. Elma York, a WASP pilot during World War II and a talented computer back when computer was a job title. The 1950s and the 1960s of the Lady Astronaut series are still much like our own and she overcomes difficulties both internal and, and external and becomes an astronaut, the famous lady astronaut who paves the way for other women astronauts. And the second book closes with her on her way towards Mars. So the third book, The Relentless Moon, is a kind of a different book altogether, even though it's in the same series. Um, it takes place around the same time as Elma's voyage to Mars, and it's told from the perspective of Elma's friend and fellow WASP pilot, Nicole Worgen. Now, Nicole is an astronaut as well, and the wife also of the governor of Kansas. So whereas the first two books are stories of one woman's struggle to earn her place during the heroic age of spaceflight, The Relentless Moon mostly takes place on a moon base when space travel is more routine. Most of the people on the lunar base, in fact, are colonists. They have some astronaut training, but they're really there to set up and sustain a working lunar colony. Now, not everybody on Earth likes the space program. And in fact, there's an organization called Earth First, which is trying to stop it via acts of disruption and sabotage. So in The Relentless Moon, Nicole attempts to track down Earth First saboteurs at the lunar base as it becomes increasingly imperiled by power outages, equipment failures, disease, and dissension. So Relent, Relent, excuse me, Relentless Moon is more of a techno thriller than the first two novels. This is a, a story of a spy versus, spy versus terrorist, spy versus saboteurs. Now, I really like this entire series. And while The Relentless Moon is not my favorite um, book in this series, there's a lot to like in this book. It's a longer book, but the story is well told and it's likely to engage the attention of the audience, even when it's 1 a.m. and you should be getting to sleep. Now, Nicole Worgen is a compelling character. She's a little harder than Elma, but she also has to deal with some things that Elma does not, such as being the, um, you know, the political arena that she, she and her husband are in. And of course, she's also dealing with her own internal struggles. And um, so she makes a different kind of character than Elma, but a, an engaging, um, compelling character nonetheless. And in the book, the main characters, the other main characters are relatable and they're drawn very well as they work together to figure out what's going on in an environment which is uh, turning against them. So the plot is well presented, ratchets up the tension nicely um, with plenty of twists and turns. I have to admit there's a certain amount of nostalgia that goes into me liking this book as much as I did. I was born in 1970 during the middle of the um, our own timelines, historic era of space flight. And I remember watching moon landings and playing astronaut when I was a kid. So part of what makes this series compelling to me is that the characters are dealing with a complex, um, complex mixture of social, political and internal difficulties. Many of them we're still dealing with today. So it's interesting to see how they, um, how they go about overcoming them. So this complexity is well handled by the author and the focus is on the characters. Although there's plenty of technical crunch for those who like their acronyms and their uh, physics discussions. So in summary, I enjoy these sort of ad astra para spera stories. And if you do as well, then I highly recommend the series. 
And I think the Relentless Moon is a worthy contender for another Hugo this year. Thank you very much, Trevor, for your thoughts. Um, Sparrow, would you like to join us now? And Sparrow- I would be happy to, go ahead. You will be reviewing The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. Yes, I will. And I had the distinct pleasure of having the book read to me. And that means you can't jump ahead. You can't go back and redo unless your reader is feeling very uh, gracious. I had to take it at the pace of the words, at the pace that the author intended. Oh boy. And I'm so glad. The City We Became has already won the British Science Fiction Association Award and is a Nebula nominee for this year. Who doesn't like a good alien invasion, right? And this alien is bad. It's got a very human face or a number of very human faces. It's got a tentacled, sticky, unpleasant, algae-like growth face. Oh, and it's bad on the multiverse collapsing death of trillions of trillions of sentient beings way. So that is one satisfying enemy. The first battle takes place in Manhattan. And the first of our heroes is there on the scene, completely disoriented. What is this tentacled alien doing in the middle of my taxi ride? First battle is great. It's everything I hoped for in a getting to know the world and the premise sort of nicely violent, nicely mysterious way. But then N.K. Jemison asks me to go deeper, to consider more than just a rollicking adventure. What happens when a really good alien invasion of New York City, no less, meets the ancient idea of the goddess of sovereignty? And the land is the king. And all of my King Arthur Excalibur uh, lands of Celtic mythology interpreted through modern New York City ideas came up to meet this alien. And boy, was that fun. All right. So we figure out slowly, because that's the pace of the words, that there are five individuals in New York City, one for each borough, who has become the avatar of that borough, its representative, its summation. And Manuel, known as Manny, brand new, moving into New York City, never been here before in his life, is the avatar for Manhattan. 
because there is always the stranger in New York City. He meets Brooklyn, a rap singer becomes city councilwoman. They meet the queen of math, an immigrant who's there at university and soaring in her studies. Takes them a while and they find an old, not old, but she feels old in, she's my age, let's put it that way. Lenape, so native artist, a woman who does no harm, but takes no guff from aliens, thank you very much, whose art name, Nomda, Nomda Art, is Bronca. And then there's Lil Staten Island. So a big chunk of the middle of the book is finding each other. Okay, fantastic. And figuring out, we know there's a bad thing. What are its capabilities? Holy tomatoes, what are our capabilities? Fortunately, one of them is finding each other. In the story, the answers to these questions, what can I do? What is the right thing to do against the, the tentacle thing coming in? The answers are hard to reach, but when we reach them, the answers are so simple. One of my fellow reviewers tonight has referred to this book as an allegory, and that's not untrue, but I think, I think it's only one facet of what's going on. Because although the simple answers made me feel like we worked so hard we, to solve it, we worked so hard to solve it, oh, that was it, boom, and move on, working hard to solve the next thing. I, I got pulled around very fast from scene to scene. But you know what? The whole thing takes place in one day. So that was appropriate. The answers are simple, not, I think, because they're an allegory, but because they are elegant in the sense of a beautifully written piece of code, in the sense of a beautiful fascinator. The answers are, you're mythic. You are mythic and you are New York City. Oh, did we mention New York City? There is a sixth avatar. Remember that first battle? Manny was able to survive it and thrive because the avatar of the whole city together, the sum of the parts, expended a huge amount of energy and is now lying broken and homeless somewhere. Our avatars have to find them, but, but then the group splits up and you say to yourself, oh no, don't split up. Staten Island. What about Staten Island? And the true urban problem of Staten Island becomes part of the quest to bond group together so that they can heal and bring about the strength and protective power of the avatar of the whole city. What will happen? when the xenophobia of Staten Island meets the true need of the city. And that, not necessarily the alien invasion, that is the big challenge. How is it solved? I'll let you read it. 
it is solved. You guessed it. Elegantly. It is solved in a way that is so apt. It is solved like the word fitting into the line of the sonnet or the knife between the ribs. I really enjoyed the city we became. It took me on a ride. Congratulations, Professor Jemison. Thank you very much for writing it. And I hope the rest of you have enjoyed it as well. Thank you, Gabriel. Well, thank you so much, Sparrow. That was a fantastic um, overview. Um, I would now like to invite Chris up onto the stage. Uh, and Chris will um, be reviewing Harrow the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. So last year, if you watched us, I reviewed the first book in the series, Gideon the Ninth. And I gave it a very good review. Um, Tamsin, Muir, Tamsin Muir is a Kiwi who now lives in Oxford. Maybe you'll run into her on the streets of Oxford someday, Gabriel. And uh, has started the Locked Tomb series. Gideon the Ninth was the first, and this Harrow the Ninth is the second. The Ninth refers to the Ninth Planet. This is set in either our far, far distant future or in another universe altogether. It's never very clear. There are nine planets, uh, inhabitable planets for, uh, maybe they've had to terraform them a bit. And each of the planets has a ruling house. And in Gideon the Ninth, the heirs of each of the nine ruling houses has been called to an old creepy manor to take tests to see if they are worthy to become the immortal saints that help the immortal emperor fight their foes. Gideon was the cavalier of the um, uh, reverend daughter, the, the heir of the house of the ninth planet. So Gideon is from the ninth planet and the reverend daughter's name is Harrow the ninth. So these are two books. The first is about the cavalier or in the cavalier's voice. And the second is in the voice of the reverend daughter, Harrow the ninth. Everything that I loved about Gideon, the um, sassy, sunshade wearing, um, uh, they, they wear this great uh, paint uh, as a sacrament. They are necromancers that use uh, the power of, of death and bones in order to uh, perform magic. Um, just a really sassy uh, POV in the first book. All of that is missing from the second book. And the second book, in Harrow's point of view, is uh, inside her head and she has gone insane. So you spend, this is like a really thick book. This is like a almost 600 page book, 500 page book. And 480 pages of it, you have no idea what's going on. Uh, Harrow has been found worthy to become one of the immortal saints that is going to help the immortal emperor fight the foes. Uh, she meets the other immortal saints, but she has gone literally insane. She's gone literally insane from the, events that happened in the first book. So the reader is very off balance for 480 pages, doesn't really know what's going on. Um, Gideon is nowhere in sight. And Harrow and all the other saints are really not nice people to spend 480 pages with. Uh, I'm actually really surprised, frankly, that this became a Hugo nominee finalist. And I would like any of my uh, co-panelists who read the book and feel differently to challenge me on that because maybe I'm just not 
getting it. It all comes together in the final 20 pages, 20 to 50 pages, and the, the mystery unfolds, but I'm not really sure that all the time I spent getting there was worth it. So I'm quite disappointed in this book, and I'm actually not that interested in reading the rest of the series. Obviously, this is not the view of most of the Hugo voters because they voted it in as one of the finalists this year. So I'm interested to hear what other people think. This was not the book for me. And I'm going to wrap it up there and pass it on to the next panelist. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Uh, and we very much appreciate your honesty. Uh, I'd like to invite Brenton uh, to the stage now. And Brenton will be reviewing uh, Piranesi by Susanna Clark. So on the surface of it, Piranesi is like a really simple novel, but I actually, I'm wondering if I can get some help. You don't need to pop your, your screens on folks, but for my panelists, if I could get some audio help. So I, I need to find a way to capture this beautiful, baffling and befuddling book in just five minutes. And so what I'm going to do is every now and then I'm going to lean in and give a conspiratorial eyebrow wiggle. It's like this. I can't actually do the real wiggle, but you're going to have to go with me on that one. And when I lean in and then I, I wiggle my eyebrows and I say, or is there, or something like that, uh, in a conspiratorial tone, then you guys add the 50s radio music, mystery music bit, okay? So you guys go, dun, dun, dun. Can, can, can we practice this? Okay. All right. Or is he? Dun, 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 dun. dun, dun. Yeah. <clears throat> Excellent. Okay. okay. We can start the timer now. All right. So, so, well, Piranesi, Piranesi, it's a lovely new novel from uh, Susanna Clark, who is the author of that genius Regency era fantasy tale, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. And the main character is a young man named Piranesi, or is he? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Indeed, that's one of the mysteries of Paranesi. Uh, the tale is told through the journals of our hero, a scientist whose entire world is a great house of many rooms. The ocean's tides move in and out of these rooms, bringing fish and seabirds and curiosities from the unknown outer rooms of the house's mysteries. There's one other person in Paranesi's world whom Paranesi calls the other. The other seems uninterested in Piranesi's scientific observations, except where they help the other seek the great and secret knowledge that he thinks is hidden in the house. Piranesi knows that Piranesi is not his true name, though he no longer remembers his name himself. So the nickname Piranesi has nothing really to do with the novel. Or does it? Dun, 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 dun. Good, good. As it turns out, Giovanni Battista Parnesi was an 18th century Italian classical archaeologist, architect, artist, famous for super creepy and weird Gothic etch etchings. Google him and you'll see how the labyrinthine nature of his work helps us to imagine Parnesi's labyrinthine house, which is peopled with statues ranging from the classical to the Piranesian grotesque. These statues, though, have no real meaning. Or do they? All right, the statues are admitted, admittedly symbolically seductive. They include an elephant carrying a castle, an angel caught on a rose bush, and a fawn with his fingers to his mouth, who, in a dream, Piranesi sees speaking to a human child in a snowy wood. With the statues come images of other people. But of course, Piranesi and the other are the only people in the world. Or are they? 
There are hints within the house of various kinds of possibilities that don't exist in Perinesi's beloved halls, like the skeletons of 13 other people, including one child. In Perinesi's world, is Perinesi's world the only universe, the only one in the universe, or are there ways in and out of this world? Perinesi really is a beautiful and mysterious story. Perinesi is a lovely character that I wish was my friend. With such distinctive fictional world and suggestive hints of philosophical possibilities, we are meant to discern some allegorical or philosophical or moral meaning. Or are we? Dun, 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 Yeah, frankly, I don't have any idea what this book means. It certainly invokes other book worlds, which we can talk about. With exquisite and simple writing, Susanna Clark creates a stunning visual effect and evocative sense of possibility. But I don't think we should read Piranesi's tale like an allegory. Piranesi has wisdom and light and the evocation of possibility for the reader without trying to stream us into specific paths of knowledge. Thus, there is no real root to the moral of this tale. Or is there? I'll make two quick connections. First, the epigraph quotes Uncle Andrew from C.S. Lewis's Narnian fairy tale, The Magician's Nephew. And I think this is very much uh, a story that asks us to seek out the magician's twin. How does the magician use power, magic, and knowledge? That's an intriguing connection to help us reread Strange and Norell, I think. Second, there's also the philosophy of Owen Barfield. Barfield speculates that ancient humans could hold in their minds a unity of concrete and abstract word meanings no longer possible for us today. In an especially moving feature of the book, Piranesi is able to think with the mind of Barfield's ancient semantic unities, a feat that, as far as I know, only C.S. Lewis, Barfield's greatest disciple, who has attempted, and he does so in his Eve character of another water world named Paralandra. As with Lewis's tales, if the reader chooses to press the symbol or the allegory or the myth too far, we will be in the same danger as the other in the novel, that in seeking the great and secret knowledge in the house, we will miss Paranisi, who stands before us. There is wisdom in this tale, as well as numinous joy and ev evocative philosophical questions. However, in a world of such complexity, angst, and magical misuse as our own world has, we should read this tale with simple delight. And thus, I've solved the mysteries of the House of Piranesi. Or have I? All right, good, yeah, good. Thank you so much, Brenton. And if we don't have futures as literary critics at least perhaps we can all get jobs uh, working on radio plays in the 1940s um i'd now like to invite cat up to the stage uh, and cat will be uh, reviewing black sun by rebecca ronors oh i follow that um okay so black sun is a fantasy novel by rebecca Roanhorse. uh it came out in quite a lovely paperback edition um in 2021. Um, it looks long and intimidating, but the font is actually quite big. Um, it is, so it's a relatively quick read. Um, it was nominated for several other awards, including the Locus and the Nebula. So Rowan Horse is one of the big new voices in speculative fiction. She's published short fiction and essays. Um, she's written for YA, middle grade and adult readers, and she's contributed to Marvel and Star Wars. 
She was actually interviewed by Amy Sturgis for Signum's Meaning of Star Wars course um, about her novel Resistance Reborn. And she was previously nominated for the Hugo for her novel Trail of Lightning. I've been meaning to read Trail of Lightning for a while, so that's the main reason that I chose Black Sun when it came up on the list um, earlier this year. So many of uh, Rowan Horse's works have a shared interest in Native American mythology, and Black Sun specifically is inspired by the mythology, mythologies of pre-Columbian America. So full disclosure, of all the world mythologies, Mesoamerica might be the one that I know the least about. So I came to this world very cold. Um, I have a general sense of the importance of astronomy from things like the Mayan calendar, but that is such a rough popular understanding. Um, so it was very interesting to see a world that draws on themes and traditions that I know very little about. So basically, the Meridian is a coastal civilization which is governed by a ruling priesthood called the Watchers and they worship the sun god. And there are a number of matriarchal clans which are ruled by dynastic families. And then within those clans, there are cults which kind of surreptitiously worship other gods um, such as the crow god. And, um, uh, but those are sort of unofficial religions which have been suppressed about a hundred years before the story takes place. The watchers asserted their authority over the clans in the night of knives where there was this sudden violent assault on the clans and they killed all these people. And so now the clans sort of recognize the priest's authority officially, um, but it's a very tenuous piece and rebellion is starting to bubble up among the more extreme factions of the clans. So the story kind of bounces between four different viewpoint characters. Naranpa is the sun priest. She's from a very um, poor and clanless background, and she's trying to change the culture of the priesthood from within and broker peace. Um, Okoa is the son of the matron of the Carrion Crow clan. He's been away studying at the war college, but he gets sucked into trying to prevent the war between the clans and the priesthood. Um, Serapio is probably what you'd call the main character. Um, and the book actually starts with his mother doing a magical ritual to make him the vessel, what she hopes will be the vessel of the reborn spirit of the, the crow god, um, who will hopefully come and return and set them free from the priesthood. And then finally, there's uh, Ziala, I think you would pronounce her name, um, who's a kind of roguish freelance captain for hire. Um, she's a member of a, a tribe called the Teak, which um, we don't find out a ton about. They're a little mysterious. I don't wanna get too much into the details of her qualities um, for spoiler reasons, um, but um, she's generally not trusted by Teak or not trusted by sort of quote, regular people. Um, so she's a, a ship's captain. She gets coerced into transporting Serapio across the sea to the city of Tova, where there's this conflict um, is coming between the priests and the clans. Um, and it's all heading towards this day of convergence, which is a solar eclipse. And the story is told out of order. So each chapter gives you a timestamp and tells you how many years or days ahead of the convergence are we. So you kind of piece together the plot as you read. Um, so a word of caution to readers, this is very much book one of a series. I would say there's not a ton of resolution in Black Sun. Um, book two, which is called Fevered Star, is actually due to come out uh, in April of 2022, so pretty soon. 
Um, so for people that are wary of starting an unfinished series, be warned. Um, so overall, I would say I enjoyed it, but it didn't blow me away. Um, as I said, I think what I enjoyed most was seeing an epic fantasy with magic and political intrigue done with a non-European mythology and tropes. Um, so it was very fresh in that way and different for me. Um, but I'm not sure that I found the style or the story as groundbreaking as some of the jacket blurbs um, kind of would suggest. Um, particularly the prose uh, was, I thought, kind of just fine. It was readable, but um, it didn't really set me on fire. Um, some of the comparisons that other reviewers have made to A Song of Ice and Fire or N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth um, are not quite there for me. I don't know that it's on that level, um, but as an introduction to a new and different kind of fantasy world, it was really intriguing and I enjoyed it and I recommend it. Thank you so much, Kat. And finally, I'd like to invite Laurel onto the stage and Laurel will be uh, reviewing Network Effect by Martha Wells. Thank you, Gabriel. The Network Effect by Martha Wells actually the fifth installment in the series, but it is a standalone. People like brilliant listeners. Martha Wells has been writing since 1993. So this is not her first series, but it is by far the one that has caught the most attention. Now I said this was the fifth in the series. The previous ones are all novellas. Four are novellas that have won multiple awards. Hugo, Locus, Nebula, and actually, Network Effect itself has also won two of those awards. Nebula and Locus Award were both won by Network Effect this year. So adding in the Hugo would be impressive. Taking into context, Network Effect is part of the Murderbot Diaries. And as the title implies, it's a first-person narrative told by Murderbot. Murderbot is not a human narrator. It is part cyborg, part human in terms of physical flesh, but it doesn't consider itself human at all, which makes for some very interesting internal dialogue as we progress through the book. I greatly enjoy the Murderbot Diaries, but the one weakness I see in Network Effect is that it is a very, very predictable plot. Essentially, we start off with Murderbot acting as a security, and then Murderbot and the humans that it wouldn't call friends, but that it doesn't want to die, so we would call them friends, are kidnapped. And then an old acquaintance that is also a friend of Murderbot's involved. And it's a bit of solve the mystery. How did you get kidnapped? Why did you get kidnapped? And of course, how do you return? So it is a very basic plot. What makes Murderbot truly unique though, is like I said, the internal dialogue. Because you have a narrator that isn't human, that still has to address these different human concerns. And the world it takes place in is space, undetermined future, where corporations to an extent rule the world. It's hyper-privatized. So Murderbot hacking free, which is explained in the earlier novellas, and striking out on its own is indeed unusual. And the humans that it encounters along the way 
many of which return a network effect, are outside the normal hyper-privatization. And Murderbot keeps running into these humans and it keeps learning as it does. So it's an interesting story of evolution of a non-human character. And one of the reviews of the book does say it's the most humane portrayal by a non-human character they've ever read, which I think is very accurate. So the entire display, Murderbot isn't very empathetic. It doesn't like humans. It doesn't want to work. It wants to be left alone. It doesn't want to deal with situations like emotions. It simply wants to go far away and watch all the television it can possibly consume. So of course, a network effect, getting kidnapped with the humans that it doesn't want fed is a bit of a spoiler on those plans. Now, network effect is lengthier than all of the novellas, so it has more time to flesh out the narration. Which again, with predicting the plot, could be a little tricky. But Murderbot's choice and vocabulary, which is very basic, but also very blunt, catalogs the entire world it sees. And the childlike way of narrating, although with swear words, but very blunt, as well as chiding itself for failing and giving almost small motivational pep talks with very morbid humor, I find endearing. One of my favorite lines from the book, says, the good thing about being a construct is that I can have a dramatic emotional breakdown while still running my background search to find the drone key commands. And that's very staple of most of the dialogue. So it's full of dry humor. So just, and despite the predictable plot, very appealing. Every, almost everyone I've recommended it to has enjoyed it greatly. And based on the previous awards, including in the Hugo, I think it has a very strong chance, despite its predictable plot, of coming out on the top with another Hugo Award for the series. Thank you so much, Laurel. And now I would like to invite everyone back onto the stage. And we're gonna now open it up to general discussion. Um, so, um, now I'm, I'm sorry, I'm fiddling around with the technology now because I, I don't know how to unspotlight you. I was doing so well with the, uh, uh, technology. Now I've spotlighted myself. I'm going to remove that spotlight. Um, okay. And then I'm going to put myself back onto gallery mode. So, um, hopefully that won't mean anything to all of you in YouTube land, uh, for everyone attending live on zoom, uh, you might want to, uh, reset your view to gallery so you can see everyone. And now I can see everyone. And I'm also going to open up this bottle of wine because it's got to that point in the evening. So we're going to kick back now and we're going to discuss the whole shortlist. We would love to hear from you in the audience um, whether you've read any of these books. Um, we've already got a comment from Eric who agrees with you, Chris, about being confused by Harrow. So you're not the only one. Uh, I know that many other panelists have read other novels. Laurel, I see them all in the background uh, behind you. Um, does anyone want to comment on any of the other novels that you haven't reviewed tonight? Yeah, Sparrow. Uh, just a response to Kat. I have not read 
your novel yet, but I have read Trail of Lightning. And I found myself in a similar position. I did not grow up with the images and stories, the world mythology that, that, that Roan Horse draws on for this character, this indigenous American um, story. And so I don't know what I was missing. So maybe we can trade books and have tea sometime. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's fair. It's it's hard to know what I'm missing and you don't know what you don't know. And that's hard to account for in a review after you've read a book one time. Um, so totally um, put whatever disclaimers in there. Um, any uh, oversights are the fault of the reviewer, not the fault of the work. Um, and just to trade a comment to your book, Sparrow, um, one of the others that I have read is uh, The City We Became. Um, which um, I found thrilling the way that you described it. Um, that one I also found similarly a little, little underwhelming, I think, because I'm such a fan of um, The Broken Earth, and especially the first book in that, in that series and the style of it, the way that it's told, the voice that she uses. So um, I think I was ready for the next N.K. Jemisin um, you know, groundbreaking bit of writing, and it was a very different kind of book. Um, so I think viewing it as you did, as taking it on its own terms and not trying to compare it to that other very different story is probably the best way to go about giving it a fair shot. Yeah, it is definitely not the Broken Earth trilogy. Um, and that did take me a little while to get used to because I was waiting for is the time thing going to change? What's going to shift? And it's a whole different world, whole different story. Okay. And so, so that was part of my work in warming up to it. And once, as you said, I took it on its own terms. I said, oh, okay. Yeah, I can, I can settle into this and listen for hours. So thank you. What about you, Laurel? I was going to say to Trevor, The Relentless Moon was actually one of my favorites from the six Hugo reads. Wow. Largely because of the shift change from the earlier twos that were Dr. Elmer York. I loved the new perspective in the fact that it was, again, it's like a spy thriller, except it happens to take place on the moon. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it has a lot of the hard science backing it up, which I quite enjoyed. It made it feel believable, almost like alternative historical fiction. And speaking to the city we became, Sparrow, I also had that same exact issue that you and Kat had, comparing it to N.K. Jemisin's other work. But I also love parts of New York City. And reading parts of that book felt so much like a love letter to certain sections of New York City. And like a chiding love letter, like you're great and you're wonderful and you still have this problem. And I loved the art facet the book so I enjoyed it quite a bit and I, there's people that I wouldn't recommend her Stone Sky, Fifth Season, Obelisky, that series too because they're not into it but I know people who would love the city because of what is in there that is not in her Broken Earth trilogy so I think it does appeal to a different reader. It really does. Laurel I'm I'm here in Plainfield, New Hampshire and the entire 
voting electorate can fit in the elementary school gymnasium for our uh, annual town meeting. And so the fact that Jemison, a resident of New York City, writes with such love of a place which to me is alien was it, just a lot of fun, a lot of learning. Uh, Brenton reviewed the book, reviewed all of our books on his blog. And he also is someone who has visited and loved New York City. And, you know, I, I went out and hugged a tree a few times as I was reading in the all alone in the very quiet woods. Um, but, you know, I absolutely agree with you that she writes it, it's fresh it is definitely fresh not an easy read okay okay sometimes we're not here for easy i did want to mention to everyone i personally am never gonna get a coffee at starbucks again <laughs> Yeah, I so yeah, so I did, so I did read. So I loved the cow, the relentless moon. Like so, I really liked the relentless moon. I really, especially liked the first book in that series. I just thought it was fun science fiction. I thought it was great, kind of mathy, physicy kind of stuff, and super cool behind. <clears throat> Actually, I quite liked the Murderbot book. Um, it's not my thing at all. Uh, Laurel, I thought you captured it well. It was sort of super fun to read. Great dialogue, rich. Uh, and, uh, you know, Chris Gideon the Ninth is brilliant. I think we could talk about Harrow. I, I, I struggled with that book. <clears throat> and uh, Kat, I think your book is the one that would be the one I would vote for if other than my own, like for, yeah, no, I was really taken by, it's, it's unresolved, but I think like <laughs> white guys like me want resolution. And I think that's one of the problems with uh, conversing with indigenous folks in the Americas these days is, is that that pressure and so um but the, book two we'll see right we'll see and there's a book two to N.K. Jemison's The City We Became and so I tend to tentatively suggest that what she's done doesn't work and doesn't work on its own terms not on like on the own terms of what would win what would cause New York City to win that's that's where I think the thing fell. And that's my struggle with the stories, because I think that N.K. Jemison sort of betrays something in the story that's essentially New York. But I could be wrong. And so we could talk about that. What N.K. Jemison does really well is like that feeling of those neighborhoods, particularly um, Brooklyn and um, <clears throat> well, especially especially Brooklyn. We spent a lot of time in Brooklyn, but a little bit in the Bronx and uh, especially in the Brooklyn and the Bronx and then a little bit in Queens and Manhattan. And we really get a feel for that. It's just so flavorful and rich, isn't it? But this is N.K. Jemison of her short stories, her long short stories, which are in like uh, the collection, How Long Till Black Future Month, right? That's that voice, not the inheritance uh, cycle, the, the Broken Earth trilogy, not, not that story, I think. I think, that's, I think that's where you find your voice. So, yeah. And I love the great city, the city born great, which was the story that became the i mean it's super awesome that uh, the prologue of the book the character is awesome like he's just so cool yeah one of the things i enjoyed Brenton, is once we readers twig to the fact that there will be an avatar for each borough and that they will somehow embody in three or four dimensions all the stereotypes that i've heard 
about that particular part of New York is how is she going to create a character that who is rich and yet who makes us say, oh, all of the stories just got pulled together into a matrix to make a complete, a believable person. We, it's, a, it, it's short. We don't have time to know their background and their goals and their loves and all of that because, because the aliens are invading right now. Thank you very much. Aliens. But I could, I would want to sit, again, I really resonated with that oldest character, the indigenous Lenape woman who's an artist and a a tough old broad from the Bronx. She is. And she's very much, very much like thinks the way that my mom, like what her brand of feminism that she grew up with, like her brand of street art, her protest style, it was very much that. But then she had the Lenape kind of ancient history of the land and there wouldn't be very many Lenape left in New York. So it was just a very, it was a very elegantly done bit. Um, And Eric in the audience uh, writes to tell us uh, that they have read all of them and they voted for Peronese. So this is an exclusive, it's almost an exit poll. We know that at least one vote has gone for Peronese. <laughs> Don't know who, who, how everyone else um, who was eligible to vote in the Hugo Awards has voted. Uh, as I say, we'll find out now, uh, sort of at time of broadcast, it is the 18th of December. So we're gonna find out in just over an hour in Washington DC, but it is fun for us to speculate about who we think might win. Um, and I do hear a lot of agreements about different people's opinions. Um, it may be the wine speaking, but I just want to uh, drill into perhaps controversy. I don't know. Um, what do people think about Herod the Ninth? Because uh, Chris, you were a little bit disappointed about it. Other people who read it, do you agree with Chris? Do you do, did you also feel that way? I guess that's yeah, Laurel and I. Go ahead, Laurel. Yeah. So I will be honest, very large reason that I disagree with Tommy Arnold's choice to cover it. It appeals to me greatly. I think it's beautiful. Because hmm. I enjoyed Kitty in the Nine Kitties, but I just thought it was too I wasn't actually largely invested in Gideon. Um, I love the world building, I love the entire necromancy construct, I love the city energy, but I could take or leave pretty much so when I continued on to Harrow, what I was invested in was the world, which I still got so much. Because even though the narrator was insane, there's so many background details to sneak through. And the book didn't make sense until we get the last chance. But it was something that I was very much not used to in reading a novel, especially something like science fiction, which a lot of people may avoid because like, they don't understand the concept of weirdness. So I think Mara took a huge risk writing Harrow like that. But she tied it together beautifully at the end. That being said, I didn't love it or hate it more than Gideon. It is a lot to invest in something like what's happening. But I got the world detail. So for me, Harrow and Gideon are about the same. Because again, there were no characters on the but I've got more into the world. So I'll probably continue on to the next topic. I love it because it's just interesting enough. Yeah, I uh, so okay, so 
I don't like, I know I can be a bit hyperbolic when I'm reading and, and writing about books. And, and I, th I think that Tamsin Weir, however her name might be pronounced, is just like an exceptionally good detailed world builder. Like I just, and like her linguistic capability is super strong. Like she's so playful with language. It is strong. And I, I guess I never thought of that about just getting kind of lost in it. I think I read the books too quickly, but I really liked the Gideon character. Like from the very first moments of Gideon the Ninth, the first like hopping up through the mountain to the landing pad trying to escape, like on, I thought it was, I thought it was super cool. And so then, so I was really lost for like a good portion of Harrow the Ninth. And like, it's, they're not happy people to kind of hang out with, right? So yeah, so that's, so like, I'm totally with Chris on that. I think I, my response is a bit, bit more positive, but I think that Gideon the Ninth is, is worth, was worth the award last year. I think that Harrow the Ninth is, is an interesting, but not um, a superb, like a, not, not a award-winning follow-up. Mm. Just on that point, um, the Hugo does often have series in it. Um, and last year I reviewed a memory called Empire uh, for this event last year. And I was a bit frustrated because it was the first of a new series and I had some issues with the ending, but then I thought, well, maybe it's all going to be worked out in the next book. And it was very difficult for me to assess it and review it. Um, the shortlist this year, this year there are a, a few series but there's also a few books that really stand on their own so Perinesi which is the only one I've read on the shortlist um, is such a kind of unique on its own jewel I think can't possibly really be kind of uh, followed up um, so what do people prefer and do you think that it would be better if uh, Hugo Awards left off series until they're finished and maybe nominated the whole series as an entry. They do have a series entry. You can vote for that nice. series. Okay, interesting. I think within a series, you go ahead, Trevor. I think within a series, you can have a wide variety. And I think the um, Lady Astronaut series is a good example of this is you can have a, mm -hmm. a wide variety of books and some of them are doing different things and different kinds of books. So. I'm very comfortable with um, having, you know, individual books in a series nominated, you know, even if it's maybe the third, the third book and the third nomination, I think that's entirely, um, you know, recognizes the fact that, that there's, there's a difference between books within a series in many cases. So. There are some series that you can read each book almost in a different order and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I, with Harrow, you can't possibly even hope to understand what's going on without having read Gideon. It's just, I'm sure some people did and maybe they got some things out of it, but uh, like with Murderbot, you can kind of jump into Murderbot at any any place, at any of the novellas and they're, they're sort of standalone adventures. Um, so I'm not quite sure where I fall down on that idea of the series, but it is hard for me to say a book is a great book if it requires that you've read other books to understand the book. I was was about to say 
no, no, they should never have a one of a series nominated for best novel. And then I thought, wait a minute. The, as Chris just said, you can have a story set in the world that other stories are set in and it stands alone. And when you step back and look at the whole group, you say, oh, they really did that. I'm thinking of Brian Jake's world with Mossflower and Martin the Warrior. I, I, I don't know who else reads a lot of kids' novels, but it can be done beautifully and that each novel can be considered on its own merits. I have a real dislike of Darth Vader spinning off still alive in the closing shot. Ha ha ha, you're on the hook, you must read the sequel. When I get that in a book, I, I, I tell, I keep my notes on Goodreads, don't do this. This author took a cheap path to selling another book. Ending on a cliffhanger means you shouldn't have stopped the book. So if you've got a nominee, which is part of a series, well, I guess then it depends on whether the series was done to my taste or better yet, the tastes of all the voters. And that's why I like the, as you said earlier, Gabriel, the democraticness, is that a word, of the Hugos. Because if that is my taste in series, I would only have one vote. And, and we get to see excellence rewarded that is not defined by some expert, even me, which I mean, everyone should come consult me first, but <laughs> I think that's part of the beauty of this award is, is you can be nominated and then you get to stand up on the merits of your reader's enjoyment. Absolutely. Like, like, it's interesting that you say the next thing, um, you know, like the, your, your book, Sparrow, uh, ends with New York in crisis, not in resolution. Like, it's really, it's really on the knife's edge. And it, like, is it just like, because that's the words and we're going to go to the next book? Like, it's not clear exactly why, but we, we wait, right? And same thing with uh, Kat's book, Black Sun, right? Where it's really just kind of the next stage in the journey. We kind of wait, right? It's just like the next thing. Murderbot, you can just pop in. It feels like the beginning of the whole thing, not the end of the thing or something like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that, that art. Certainly Harrow the Ninth then has an epilogue that invites like, a whole next thing, whatever the next thing might be. It's just amazing. Yeah. So we'll see. I don't, I don't know. Piranesi though, totally on its own. Like it is mm. definitely an outlier in this cast. Um, and these, these, these book statues. Yeah. Brenton, I have a question about Piranesi for you. Okay, go. Your playful and very fun way of presenting it to us made me feel like it was Saturday and there's a good rainstorm outdoors. I have nothing I have to do except watch great 1940s and 50s um, murder mystery movies. 
Okay. It, it was cozy and homey. Da, da, da. Is it really, or is it really the, what the, the, yeah. Is, does the book have that cozy feeling as well? I'm going to, I'm going to give you some tropes and then I'm going to take you for an unexpected ride. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. I think it's actually the ideal book for like the COVID era. You just, you just say, you know what, I'm just gonna, gonna close the doors. I'm gonna turn off the phone and I'm just gonna sit. You can read it and I don't know. I haven't checked the audiobook. I listened to the audiobook. I started the audiobook because I, I needed to start reading the second time. He's very, very well done reader, but I don't know. I assume it's six or six, eight hours. You just read it in a day or you just read it little by little as you're walking around. It's just, I think, just like a lovely, gorgeous, warm book. Um, and my, I spent so much of the time of the book trying to puzzling what it was, what it was supposed to be that I didn't, I almost didn't realize that I need to stop and, and let the, the novel kind of wash over me. And, and so I'm going to reread this and, and uh, sit, let it, let it work upon me. I, I uh, um, instead of expecting something, I, I think that's the way that the book works. And so there is a detective aspect to it. It's, um, there's, there's definitely that. There's definitely a fairy tale likeness. It's definitely a legend feeling book. It's definitely mythic. It's definitely a philosophical quandary of some kind. It's definitely a linguistic experiment. <clears throat> it's definitely a fantasy. It's definitely a world building book. Um, and it's definitely got these Gothic and romantic things to it. Uh, but I don't know, like, I think reading it like Jonathan Livingston, the seagull or you know the prince le petit prince uh what's that the little prince i think i i don't know that we do it justice today just right now i think in a year or two then we can squeeze down and let the book be and it may just disappear in history or this may be one of those those the books that happen in a decade Very interesting yeah cat <laughs> yeah, um, go ahead no, I, Brenton alluded to it earlier, but to Sparrow's question, I think Piranesi has one of the most delightful and lovable main characters that I've ever read. So if you're just looking for someone to absolutely love and root for, and, you know, and accidentally does kind of speak to the COVID era of isolation and finding beauty and hope in difficult circumstances and in being alone with the world, um, I think this is the book for you in, in 2021. So um, yeah, I think comfy, it, it has its elements of darkness, but with the comfort of, I think ultimately it's, it's a very uplifting story. Yeah. Mm. Great, well, we're coming to the end of our time, but we have a very important thing to do. We're gonna have a vote for the audience um so there's two questions the first question is which novel do you think will win the hugo uh for the best novel and the second question is which novel are you planning to read next so asking different things because you might think the one thing's going to read uh, going to win but i really want to read such and such a, a book based on what i've heard tonight so i'm going to launch that and i'm going to wait for everyone to uh to make your choices. Um, and just to remind everyone, The Relentless Moon um, was the first book which was reviewed by Trevor, uh, The City We Became by N.K. Jemison, 
as re was reviewed uh, by Sparrow. Harrow the Ninth was reviewed by Chris Swank, um, written by Tamsin Muir. Muir. And who I might see in Oxford, hopefully. Uh, Perenisi by Susanna Clark was reviewed by Brenton. Um, or was it? Or was it? Dun, dun, dun. Uh, we'll we'll okay. practice. Um, Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse was reviewed by Kat. Uh, a Network of Effect by Martha Wells was reviewed by Laurel Stevens. Now, Network Effect actually won the Nebula, which doesn't necessarily mean anything because they're very different awards chosen by different people. But, you know, it's worth thinking about. And we've got some votes coming in. Um, if you haven't voted, please vote quickly um, so that we can report because currently we, we, we don't really, we don't have a, a, a huge number of um, participants. Um, perhaps people are still thinking about it, but I can announce that uh, so far, um, network effect yeah. um, is uh, the uh, is the is the, the the prediction to win the Hugo, so we'll see if that's true. And Piranesi is the choice for what to read next. And Chris and Kat, yes, you're right. Panelists can't vote. This is just for the audience. You've had your time, panelists, um, but you can say verbally if you have a different opinion. And we've just we've just. Uh, had a sudden change in the voting. Uh, the City We Became by N.K. Jemison has also been uh, voted for um, which novel we think will win the Hugo uh, and, per and Black Sun has been voted on for what novel we want to read next. So it's a dead heat between uh, Pyrenees and Black Sun, which I, I would agree. I definitely want to read Black Sun. Uh, and then The City We Became and Network Effect we think might win the Hugo to dead heat. Um, any last thoughts from the panelists? If you, I've already if you said choose, yeah if you choose to read Paranesi I think you should read it aloud to somebody or have that someone someone read it aloud to you you just don't rush it and and just relax I, I like it could it could win like this is an odd year like we have to admit this is kind of an odd year if the science fictionies win then probably Murderbot over the Relentless Moon will probably win but like it's just not like one time Spinell or Jerry Purnell and Niven, Larry Niven won for like Inferno, which is just this dumb, crazy, weird book written in the Inferno based on C.S. Lewis's construct in The Great Divorce. It won. It's not a book for the generations. So sometimes this is how it goes. If that's the way it goes, I think that either N.K. Jemison's The City We Became or Rebecca Roanhorse's um, Black Sun will win based on kind of the the uprooty kind of American moment of um, moral writing is happening. Hmm. Any other thoughts on which one will win or which one you want to read next before we close? Sparrow um, says Piranesi, just shout it out quickly. Yeah, go for it. I would be surprised if Piranesi wins just because I've heard mm. so much positive about it. There does seem to be a bit of a buzz about it. But, but you it's know, it's also very niche. I feel. Yeah, I mean, it has won. Uh, it won the. Uh, I think it won the Women's Prize for Fiction. Yes. Um, so it has already won won something. Again, might mean something, might not. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, and 
Oh, and, and Rachel says, the only one I've read is Perinesian. I loved it and want to reread it, but Black Sun is the one I would probably read next. Um, yeah, Black Sun is, is high up on my list as well. Um, and Eric has let us know that the uh, ceremony has been delayed by an hour. So if you're watching live, um, just uh, hang on to find out what um, book actually wins best novel. If you are joining us on YouTube, then you are joining us in the future and you can find out now which novel won and uh, see if we were right tonight or whether we were wrong. Either way, it's just a bit of fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, do leave a comment below uh, your views on the shortlist, which books you liked, which books you want to read. Hit that subscribe button if you haven't done so already. And if you're wondering how you can join live events like this, not just on YouTube, but actually as they're happening on Zoom and you can interact with the panelists and the experts that we have at Signum University, then do follow Signum University on social media. We're on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, and we post about new events coming up and you can sign up for them there. So that's it. Thank you very much to the panelists for wonderful reviews. Thank you very much to you and the audience for joining us. And from all of us at Signum University, we wish you a very happy and healthy holiday period and a wonderful new year. Good night.